Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Advances in the Treatment of Gastrointestinal Stromal Tumors, or GIST. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other organizations, and um, today's activity is supported by Blueprint Medicine, so I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have actually quite a few of you on the call today. There are over 219 participants on the call today, so there are a lot of you on the call. The majority of you come from the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants on the call today from Canada, China, India, Vietnam, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And uh, I want to thank you all for spending this next hour with us. Uh, to learn more about advances in the treatment of gastrointestinal stroke tumors or GIST. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Suzanne George. Dr. George is Clinical Director, Center for Sarcoma and Bone Oncology, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. Dr. George will be addressing an overview of the treatment of gastrointestinal stromal tumors, or GIST, in the context of COVID-19, diagnosis and staging and role of mutations, surgery for primary GIST and postoperative treatment surveillance, and initial treatments for metastatic GIST. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. George. Well, Dr. Messner, thank you so much for that, uh, that introduction, and thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in this important cancer care call today. As you mentioned, today, today's call is going to focus on gastrointestinal stromal tumor, um, also referred to as GIST. GIST is the most common sarcoma of the GI tract. It represents about 5,000 new cases per year in the United States. And we have learned a tremendous amount about GIST in the past 20 years. And this knowledge has translated into multiple new therapeutic approaches and significant improvements in patient outcomes. In a few moments, I will talk about the specifics of treatment of GIST. But before getting into those specifics, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the care of GIST in these unprecedented times of COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted nearly every aspect of our lives across the country and the globe. Public health efforts required to control the illness are focused on social distancing, minimizing travel, and minimizing exposure to others. And this has led to significant concern and anxiety in many parts of our lives, but particularly in the cancer patient community regarding, on regarding going to the oncologist, having labs performed, having scans done to check on the status of cancer and the effectiveness of therapy. This has also led to many hospitals, clinics, and labs changing the way they normally interact with patients, changes in appointment timing, changes from in-person to virtual visits, and more. The extent to which this has changed um, your cancer care likely varies based on the community in which you live and the impact of COVID-19 in your area. Times of change and uncertainty can be extremely stressful. But what I really want to emphasize is that during this time, we want people to continue to receive their cancer care. GIST is a disease that has very effective therapies. Patients with GIST should continue to receive the care that has been proven to improve their outcomes. And we feel that patients can indeed continue to receive this care safely with the many precautions that have been and continue to be put in place. We are all learning together how to continue to move forward in this new environment. My recommendations are to stay in close cut touch with your care team, your doctor, your nurses, and others to ensure that you receive what you need to keep yourself as well as possible in this environment. During this time, there are no recommendations to stop or alter therapies for GIST. The risks of untreated GIST can be significant, and we need to keep that in mind as we adapt to this new environment. 
So again, keep connected to your care team. If your doctor recommends blood work or labs to ensure that you are safe on the treatment you are receiving, work with them to come up with an environment that you can feel as comfortable as possible to have those labs drawn. If you are in need of imaging to assess response to treatment or the status of your GIST, again, work with your team to have these done in a way that is safe and as comfortable for you as possible. If you have a new symptom or your team recommends that you come to clinic to be seen in order to evaluate your health, ask your team what that visit will be like. And if you're unable to bring a friend or family due to the changes due to the pandemic, ask if you can video conference. What are the tools and opportunities available to be sure that you have that most important second set of ears with you? Um, your cancer care is important and it should continue. It may be different than what you're used to and what we're all used to, but we need to continue to work together to provide you the care that you deserve. Next, I want to shift gears and talk more specifically about the topic of today, which is GIST. I'll start off by talking about the diagnosis, staging, and role of mutational testing in this disease. And as I mentioned at the outset, GIST is the most common sarcoma of the GI tract, with about 5,000 cases per year in the United States. GIST as a primary tumor can originate anywhere along the luminal GI tract, with the stomach being the most common site, with about 60% of primary GISTs originating in this location. The next most common site of GIST to originate is the small intestine, with about 30% of GIST originating in the small bowel. The rectum and the esophagus are other sites that can, um, uh, where primary tumors can originate, and these are much less common. The primary management of localized GIST that can be removed without disruption in bodily functions is surgical resection. What I mean by that is if somebody has a GIST tumor and it's able to be removed surgically without causing too much trouble or harm, then surgical resection is the recommended uh, approach. The extent and the type of surgery, meaning an open surgery through a large abdominal incision or a laparoscopic minimally invasive approach, really depends on the location of the tumor relative to the surrounding structures. In contrast to other types of sarcoma, in GIST, adjacent organ resection is typically not undertaken. And in addition, microscopically positive margins has not clearly demonstrated a negative long-term impact, again, supporting the concept that um, surgery that allows preservation of function as long as all the visible disease is removed is typically the approach that's taken. <clears throat> in contrast to many more common cancers, GIST typically does not spread to the lymph node system. And although a staging system for GIST does exist, in clinical practice, we typically think of GIST in two main categories, either localized GIST, meaning just being present in one place, or metastatic GIST, meaning that the GIST has spread from the primary site to other locations, typically within the abdomen, either the liver or the peritoneum. For patients with localized GIST, we think of um, the risk of recurrence based on a risk, a stratified risk assessment system. There are three main elements that can contribute to this determination of risk. One is the primary tumor location with the stomach as a favorable site, the small bowel as a less favorable site. The second is the size of the primary tumor with less than five centimeters as the most favorable, five to 10 centimeters as intermediate favorability, and greater than 10 centimeters as the highest risk. The third factor that goes into the risk stratification system is mitotic rate, less than five mitoses being favorable, greater than five mitoses being high risk. It's important to note that mitotic rate assessment is most reliable on the initial resection specimen, particularly if the patient has never received prior therapy. Based on this, these three factors, tumors are categorized by, as, by risk, either as very low risk, low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. And there are several uh, systems that use these groupings in slightly different ways, but this is generally the approach that's taken after surgery in order to determine likelihood of potential recurrence. Patients with very low and low-risk tumors are typically managed with surgical resection alone, followed by imaging surveillance. Patients with high-risk tumors are typically treated with adjuvant imatinib, meaning imatinib administered follows surgery for at least three years, although longer durations may be considered for some patients depending on the clinical situation. 
Patients with intermediate risk tumors are usually managed on a case-by-case basis, depending on the unique circumstances of the individual case, patient, tumor, and provider discussions. Usually, in terms of surveillance, patients will have a CT of the abdomen and pelvis every three to six months following initial surgery, depending on the particular risk. Lower risk tumors may have a longer interval between scans. Higher risk tumors may have a shorter interval between scans. Over time, this interval may change based on how patients are doing um, and what the risk of the tumor is. If if a patient has a high-risk tumor and is placed on adjuvant imatinib, um, that surveillance is similar. Typically, once on adjuvant imatinib, the interval surveillance is initially at about every three months, and then after a year or so, that will begin to spread out. But once the adjuvant therapy is completed, imaging follow-up again goes back to that more frequent schedule, typically back to every three months. And this is because we know that the risk of recurrence after stopping adjuvant imatinib is highest during the first year after stopping after imatinib is discontinued. With regard to mutations, gain-of-function mutations in KIT or Peter Jeff receptor alpha define about 85% of all GISTs. And it's important to send the primary tumor for mutational testing in order to determine what that driver mutation is. This genotyping or mutational testing is typically done by next-generation sequencing in the current um, environment. And it's important to do this because a specific mutation certainly can impact treatment decisions. Tumors with the uncommon primary driver mutation called Peter Jeff receptor alpha D842V are very important to identify. And this is because this unique mutation is highly resistant to imatinib and sunitinib and regoracinib, the currently approved therapies. Similar tumors which do not harbor, similarly, tumors which do not harbor activating mutations in KIT or Peter Jeff receptor alpha, formerly referred to as wild type GIST, have no demonstrated benefit to adjuvant imatinib. And therefore, if a patient were to have a primary tumor with either Peter Jeff receptor alpha D842V or be designated as not having any activating mutations or KIT or Peter Jeff receptor alpha, those patients would not be considered for adjuvant imatinib because adjuvant imatinib is not effective in those settings. So clearly, understanding what the mutation is can have impact on the care in the localized setting. Similarly, this same, um, this, this same paradigm holds true for patients with metastatic GIST, and this will be something that Dr. Heinrich will likely discuss more in the next part of the talk. I want to take my last couple of minutes and talk about the initial treatments of metastatic GIST. Patients who develop metastatic GIST um, have the standard of care first-line therapy of imatinib. Imatinib has been the backbone of therapy for metastatic GIST since its initial approval in 2001. Imatinib is a potent kit inhibitor, which has demonstrated clear and dramatic benefit in this setting. There are some exceptions to this. Specifically, patients with tumors that harbor the unique imatinib-resistant mutation, Peter Jeff receptor alpha D842V, now have a novel treatment option, avapritinib, which Dr. Heinrich will discuss in more detail. In addition, patients um, with metastatic disease whose tumor harbor a primary activating mutation in KIT exon 9 may benefit from higher doses of imatinib in their first line of therapy. Typically, may be considered for treatment at 400 milligrams twice per day for exon 9 mutation patients, whereas the standard dose for imatinib in the first line setting is 400 milligrams once per day. Lastly, the role of first line therapy in GIST that does not have an activating mutation or KIT or Peter Jeff receptor alpha remains somewhat controversial. Some investigators will treat with imatinib still, although many others will use either sunitinib or regoracinib as first-line therapy. Any of these options can make good sense, but it's important to have the conversation uh, in the patient-specific environment. And although results with imatinib have been dramatic, Over time, the majority of patients with metastatic GIST will develop imatinib resistance. Subsequent lines of therapy, sunitinib, regoracinib, and repretinib have been approved, providing multiple options for patients following first-line therapy. I will now turn the discussion over to Dr. Heinrich to discuss treatment of metastatic GIST, including new agents, in more detail. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. George. That was really outstanding and such a wonderful um, introduction to the call and just putting the whole context of the program in place. So thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Uh, thank you so much, as always. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Michael Heinrich. Dr. Heinrich is Professor of Medicine, Cell and Developmental Biology, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Program in Molecular and Cellular Biosciences, School of Medicine, Oregon Health and Science, University, OHSU. And Dr. Heinrich will be addressing the treatment of metastatic gists, new agents to treat gists, preparing for telehealth, telemedicine appointments with your healthcare team, and what's new on the horizon for just cancers. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Heinrich. Thank you, Dr. Messner and Dr. George. Um, so in terms of treatment of metastatic gist, uh, just to... Uh, amplify what Dr. George has already said, that the most important factor in successful or optimal treatment of metastatic gist is for is the, an understanding of what type of gist that you have. So we've gone from an era where 22 years ago there wasn't even a diagnosis of gist. It was lumped in with leiomyosarcoma, but then we re realized that that other type of sarcoma and gist were completely different, and that led to imatinib and the treatments we have now. But initially and historically, patients with gist have been treated as if they all have the same disease and they get the same drugs, one, two, three, um, <clears throat> as they need them. But we now realize that that's not the optimal way of treatment and that we actually should individualize, even from the beginning, what the treatment should be. And so the the guiding principle of of treatment of metastatic gist is that we need to understand the mutation um, in your tumor. And that could be in your primary tumor, if you had surgery, or if you had a biopsy at any point, we could figure out mostly what we need to know from that original uh, tissue. Um, so if you were you know, buying a house and you were working with your realtor, they would tell you, you know, the price of the house depends upon location, location, location. Um, in the treatment of GIST, it's mutation, mutation, mutation. So if you and your doctor don't know the mutation of your tumor, then you are potentially sending out on the wrong pathway for your treatment. So I'm going to accordingly divide my remarks of metastatic disease into little groups depending upon the mutation. So the biggest group, as Dr. George mentioned, of GIST is GIST with a KIT mutation. So KIT mutations account for about two-thirds to three-quarters of all GIST. So mostly, historically, you can get away with doing treating everybody the same because three-quarters of them are the same. And so for KIT mutant disease in the metastatic setting, as Dr. George mentioned, we would start off with imatinib. And, you know, we would continue imatinib as long as it was tolerable or as long as it would be effective. But in many patients, or in fact most patients treat with imatinib for a long enough period of time, such many months or, or many years or even more than 10 years, eventually the disease can become resistant to the treatment. We've studied this extensively over the last 20 years, and we now know that the reason for this resistance is um, secondary mutation. So if we think as KIT as sort of the power supply of the cancer cell, we need to be able to turn turn that off, sort of like you need to be able to turn your car off with your, with your car key. Um, but in the case of secondary mutations, the, the car key, which is the drug, no longer works. You can't turn it off anymore because the lock has been changed. And so that's why we use different drugs. So if imatinib is no longer working or for rare patients who cannot tolerate imatinib at a, a required dose, then historically the second-line treatment has been sunitinib, and then when that no longer works, we would move on to regorafenib. And excitingly, even just this month, a new agent called repretinib was approved and now represents the treatment for patients in the fourth or fifth line. So in the last 20 years, we've gone from no treatments from GIST to having four treatments for kid mutant GIST. So that's quite exciting. Um, repretinib is an exciting new agent. Dr. George and I have, and other and just doctors around the world have been working for years to test this drug, and we're very excited that it is now approved. 
The second topic in metastatic disease I would like to talk about is PDGFRA, the platelet-derived growth factor receptor alpha mutant GIST. So this comprises around 5 to 10% of GIST. Now, importantly, the most common form of PDGFRA mutant GIST has mutations has a mutation known as the D842V mutation. That mutation is resistant to imatinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib. So historically, treatment outcomes for for patients with those mutations, just with that mutation, have been very poor because none of our drugs work. Fortunately, a new drug which was designed to combat this mutation, known as avapritinib, became FDA-approved um, in January of this year. So that's an exciting new treatment. The treatment response, which for imatinib, for this type of GIST, we would think to be 0%. Um, but with this new agent, the response rate was around 85%, and approximately 95% of people treated with this drug have disease control. So the disease stops growing or, or shrinks. Um, so this is an exciting new treatment. But in order to avail yourself of this treatment and to sort of uh, avoid taking drugs which are ineffective, we need to know your mutation from uh, the beginning. So that's very important. Uh, the third uh, topic or type of GIST are, is a GIST called uh, SDH deficient, which stands for succinate dehydrogenase. Uh, deficient GIST. These GISTs are completely different. They often arise in younger individuals. They don't have the they don't have KIT or PDGFRA mutations. They don't respond very well to imatinib. Maybe not at all. It's a little controversial, but significantly less well than any other type of GIST. And so we still don't know the best way to treat these. Um, but many experts would say start with sunitinib or regorafenib. The other important point about this type of GIST is that about 70% of patients who have SDH-deficient GIST have developed that because they inherited a mutation, which means that other people in their family, such as their children, um, their siblings, their parents, aunts and uncles, cousins, may also be at risk of developing GIST. And so when patients have SDH-deficient GIST, it's important to identify that because, so we can optimize treatment, but we also need to do some genetic counseling and testing to figure out if, if you are an individual who inherited this, then we need to talk to you about having other members of your family tested so that we can um, do surveillance to detect their GIST at an early stage when we could more easily treat it. Then there are a couple other types of GIST, which probably only comprise about 1% of GIST each, but are notable because we have very effective treatments. So there's a type of GIST that has uh, a translocation, which is a chromosomal rearrangement of a gene called NTRAC, um, and the FDA has an approved treatment for that, lerotrectinib, which is very effective, whereas any of the other treatments I've discussed today would be completely ineffective. So again, 1% isn't very common, um, but if you're the 1%, that becomes the 100% of what we need to worry about. And finally, there are just with mutations of a gene called BRAF, which is very commonly mutated in melanoma and colon cancer and thyroid cancer, but very rarely in GIST. Because of the other diseases, there are a number of inhibitors that are BRAF inhibitors, which would which I have personally seen to be effective for this form of GIST. It's not FDA approved, but I've been successful working with drug companies to get patient assistance for patients to get this drug. So if you had a BRAF mutant GIST, even though that's very rare, you would want to avoid all the drugs I've mentioned and go to a BRAF inhibitor. The next topic, which sort of uh, dovetails with, again, with what Dr. George was saying, was preparing for your telehealth, telemedicine appointments with your healthcare team. So again, I would echo all the comments that we're, we're in this together, we're learning together, we've never had to do things exactly this way before, and so every week we're trying a new thing to be a little bit more successful. Some general tips that I would say is uh, make sure you have good audio or video. So um, if you can test it out before your appointment, that can avoid a lot of frustration. I know in my clinic for the video, um, uh, appointments, we actually 
contact the person and do a mock video, sort of like we can do a, a test a Zoom call, just to make sure everything works correctly. Um, if the video doesn't work, we can just go back to a simple telephone call because that generally works for everybody. Second, um, you know, a lot of times people call the clinic and we everybody's working from home. And so the phones are trying to be route, routed to people's homes, but sometimes it's to their cell phones. And like my nurse kind of works, lives way out in the country and doesn't have very good cell phone service. And so communicating electronically rather than by phone might be a better strategy. And so a lot of uh, medical practices have something called Epic and an, an application called MyChart, which is a secure messaging through um, our electronic health record. And I believe other electronic health records have something similar. So it's, it's basically sending it like an email, but it's attached to your chart so we can keep track of what you ask and what we responded. Um, and it's completely secure. So that might be a better uh, strategy than phone calls, especially when there's not even anybody in our building at the moment. Third, and generally, uh, in, when you came to a clinic, we would go through your list of medications um, with our medical assistants before I would go into the room, but that's not happening. So having a, a accurate list of your medications that's printed out that you can look at is, is very helpful. Um, I can see the medications I prescribed. I can't always see the medications from your heart doctor or your diabetes doctor, and I want to make sure I know everything that you're that you're taking. And finally, um, we still want you to get labs and imaging, but for people who don't live close to our hospital, we are now doing those things remotely. We've run into quite a bit of difficulty getting a CT scan scheduled because um, many places were shut down or were refusing to do them. And so we would ask a little bit proactively that a couple weeks before your appointment, you help us identify a facility in your area that is open to, to doing a CT scan or a lab draw so that we can send the orders to the right place and try to get the results. Um, nowadays, it's really hard to schedule things and we don't always get the results. And it's always a little bit suboptimal to have a office visit when you had a scan, but I don't know what the results showed. And that's, of course, the thing that's the most important to you. Finally, what's new on the horizon for just cancers? Well, as I mentioned before, repretinib is an exciting new agent. It was just approved in the fourth line, but we are interested in whether or not we should be using this drug earlier. So there is a phase three, which is a comparative study between repretinib, the current fourth line drug, and sunitinib, the current second line drug, to see whether we should be using repretinib earlier. Um, the second area, now that avapritinib and repretinib have been so extensively tested and shown activity, we know that there's still a role for new kid inhibitor drugs to be developed, and that's going on. But it's so far, those agents really haven't gotten to the clinic yet, but we're hoping that that will continue to happen. We are also trying to target other aspects of just besides the mutations in KIT or PDGFRA. And so we're trying new strategies in which we load chemotherapy or load radiation on a targeting agent that we can target to the GIST cell. So the GIST cells bind a peptide or a, a target sequence and either take chemotherapy into the cell or take radiation into the cell so we can selectively target the GIST cells. That's worked in a lot of other cancers. Whether it will work in GIST is an open question, but we're interested in finding that out. I think the field will continue to move forward trying to develop combination treatments. Um, that's been challenging, but as we get to the limits of how many new drugs we can develop, we're going to have to start figuring out ways to combine them. And finally, you know, we always get a lot of questions about immunotherapy. So stimulating the immune system to attack cancer has been very effective in a lot of human cancers, but it's also been very disappointing in other human cancers, and we're trying to figure that out. In GIST, we have some evidence that those strategies could be effective, but I don't think we have yet identified which agents or combinations of agents are really going to be clinically effective, but we could I'm sure that some questions on that will um, come up during the question and answer. So with that, I would like to conclude and turn back to Dr. Messner.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Heinrich. That was very informative and just really hearing uh, all about the new agents and also what's new on the horizon, how new things will be developed, and also the telehealth um, appointments because that's really an area that I think people are um, finding their way with and really giving them access to physicians like you and and, and Dr. George in, in such a way that they don't have to travel in for appointments all the time, which has really been, uh, for many people, so important. So thank you for your excellent presentation. Outstanding. Um, and I, um, I'm, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions. So please, uh, some of you have already submitted questions, but um, this is a good time to get your questions in to us so we can ask your questions. Um, so I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm uh, an oncology social worker and director of education and training at Cancer Care. And I just wanted to go over with you the free services and programs that you can access from Cancer Care. I'm going to give you just a thumbnail sketch of them. There are many, and I just want to be sure that um, you have a sense of those programs. We are national in scope. Um, so we do offer practical and financial assistance. The financial assistance is specifically for people in the United States. All the other programs, of course, are available to anyone, and anyone can go to our either to call us, which I realize internationally might not be so easy to do. We have a hope line, an 800 number, or you can simply visit our website at www.cancercare.org. I should also say that any resource any of us give out during the program itself or the Q&A, you'll be getting an evaluation form from us uh, probably next Tuesday, and in that evaluation will be all sorts of resources, um, organizations that you can tap into for help. Some of them you may know of already um, and some may be new to you. Um, so we do offer a chance to talk with our oncology social workers, really um, to bring some of your questions and concerns to them. Um, we also do offer uh, support groups on the telephone online and people find those very useful and actually very accommodating in terms of just not having to travel. So the telephone support group or an online support group, depending on your preference. Our online support group is quite large. We, I mean, we have large numbers of these groups, um, I think over 100 of these groups, on many different types of cancer and also in different terms of people's uh, where they are in the life, life cycle. So for young adults, for middle-aged adults, older adults, caregivers, um, partners, um, spouses, um, you know, family members, so groups for everyone and groups also on different types of cancers. So that gives you a bit of a thumbnail sketch of what we do, and of course we offer these educational programs, um, and those are also, we do quite a few of them and on many different topics as well. Now with that being said, we do now have time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. So Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to and ask a question, that's star one. We have a question for one of our online participants. Um, we seem to have a number of them coming in. Um, and um, I'm going to give this question to start with to Dr. George, and then I'm sure Dr. Heinrich also will want to weigh in on as well. If a patient was diagnosed with a long, uh, diagnosed a long time ago with just with one metas one one metas one metastasis, and there is no tissue for mutation testing and no clinical disease, how long do you recommend treatment with imatinib? So Dr. George, would you want to start with that one? And then Dr. Heinrich, if you want to add to that? Sure. No, I think that that's, a, that's an important question because as we, as people continue to live longer and longer on imatinib, this is a question that actually comes up not, not that infrequently. Um, the data that we have to date suggests that patients who, people who have metastatic GIST um, should be treated with imatinib lifelong. There have been several studies from France that have suggested when imatinib is stopped in people with metastatic GIST that within a year the tumors tend to come back. Now, the patients in those, in those studies were a little bit different than the scenario described in this question. Those were patients that continued to have disease present. But the general principle holds true. Um, if we 
think about the studies in surgery, for example, where we may have patients who had metastatic disease, were on imatinib, or stable, all the disease was removed, and if a kinase inhibitor, if the imatinib was not resumed, the, the tumors came back. And this basically just implies that there's microscopic disease present that imatinib is controlling. So right now, I think the recommendation would be to stay on indefinitely, although as we continue, as time continues to pass, we may learn more information. But right now, it's an indefinite recommendation. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Um, Heinrich, do you want to add anything to that? Or uh, I would completely agree. I, I just going. To, I would also point out kind of the what was sort of implied in the question that if you continue the imatinib and the tumor came back, we would definitely want to biopsy it to make sure we understood what type of gist that you had, so that we could optimize what would be your next treatment. But I agree with indefinite treatment. Excellent, thank you. And this question for Dr. Um, Heinrich um, would like to know what is the latest from ASCO meetings on optimal dose in adjuvant Exxon 9 setting? Is imatinib still the best adjuvant drug to be used for Exxon 9? Okay, um, well, this is an excellent question. Um, this is a controversial area, so I'd be interested to see what Dr. George thinks. So we know from in the metastatic setting that if you have Exxon 9 and we give you imatinib at the standard dose of 400 milligrams that we would give everybody else, it doesn't work as well as if we give, it, give a higher dose, um, specifically trying to get to 800 milligrams, although we don't always get there. So in the adjuvant setting, if you look at patients with Exxon 9, we are unable to demonstrate using a dose of 400 milligrams that it matters whether we give you imatinib or not, whether it's zero years versus one year, one year versus three years, we can't show that there's any impact of that. So people have interpreted that different ways. One is to say, well, it doesn't work for Exxon 9, so don't do it. Others, such as myself, have thought, well, maybe the dose is just wrong. And so for my patients with Exxon 9 resected gist, we have discussions about how we don't really know, but, you know, we should we try to get to 800 milligrams? So let's start at 400 and go up to 600, and if that goes okay, go up to 800 milligrams. So um, that's kind of what I've been doing. I think what the the very informed uh, question asker is getting to is there's an ASCO abstract, I think, from an Italian group, or at least a European group with some of the Italian sarcoma group in it, um, who was stating that they didn't see any difference in outcomes between uh, KID-Exxon 9 mutant GIST patients who had adjuvant 400 versus 800 milligrams. So I saw that abstract. I wanted to look at the poster or listen to the talk to get a little bit more information um, because that's sort of not what I was expecting and not what I have been doing. So. I, I would take a little bit of pass on answering the question right now because I want to look at the data, but the data suggests that maybe we shouldn't be giving imatinib at all um, because 800 milligrams is not better than 400 milligrams, and 400 milligrams is not better than nothing. Um, so, you know, and it's as far as doing something else like sunitinib, sunitinib is the better exon 9 agent, but we've never studied in the adjuvant setting. It tends to have more side effects. And if we're talking about long durations like years of therapy when you may be cured by your surgery, it's hard for me to say that's what we should do. Um, so we don't really know. <laughs> I'd like to learn more from the presentation, but I'm curious as to what Dr. George thinks about all that. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, Thank you, Dr. Heinrich. Dr. George, yes. yes. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with Dr. Heinrich. This is a, it's a hard question because it's really, you know, exon 9 mutations are much less common than exon 11 mutations. So when you look at the data in the adjuvant setting, the, the number of patients is much smaller. So the power that you have to identify differences statistically is much lower than when you're looking at the more common mutation types. And I think it's because of that. 
um, that there is still so much uncertainty in the field, just as Dr. Heinrich explained. And because these data sets tend to be relatively small numbers of patients, um, it's hard to say something definitive, so many people interpret it slightly differently. Um, so I think that I think the question is still out. I would say, though, that I think many people are similar to Dr. Heinrich in, in what he said. I think many of us do still treat with 400. We may try to go up to 800. The toxicity is higher at 800. Um, so it is just it's a balance of, of risk and benefit. And, and similar to um, what Dr. Heinrich mentioned, I think this new data from the Italian, uh, the European group, we just need to, to have some time to go through it in, in a little bit more detail. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's excellent question. You're all getting the most incredible information and asking really good, great, great questions as well. Thank you. Another question now for uh, Dr. George to start with. Um, I'm on Gleevec as, as neoadjuvant therapy for four months now. My gist is CKIT exon 11 on outside of stomach at size of 14 centimeters. Since starting the Gleevec, my GRF has decreased significantly to 45. Does Gleevec affect kidneys? So, um, you know, I really appreciate the question. It, it's a little bit difficult for us to give uh, very patient-specific information over this call because there are so many subtleties in an individual patient care that um, that we may not be able to appreciate over in this type of forum, but I'm happy to make a couple comments. So I'm glad that you brought up the concept of neoadjuvant imatinib. I did not mention that in my comments about local therapy, but it certainly in patients who have large tumors up front that are not metastatic, um, it is very appropriate to use imatinib as the first uh, the first treatment in order to try to shrink the tumor down to make the operation to remove the tumor um, perhaps uh, less risky or less extensive. So I think the role of imatinib in neoadjuvant therapy is very well established and something that many of us do on a pretty regular basis. It's also important to note that maximum response to imatinib can take, you know, six to nine months. So it's also very common if one is considering neoadjuvant therapy to do it measured in months, sometimes six months or more, till you get the maximum shrinkage before you're going to um, move on to surgery. With regard to um, imatinib and kidney function, <clears throat> there has been some suggestion that perhaps very long-term use of imatinib can lead to some kidney dysfunction, although this is compounded by many years of scans and IV contrast, which can also impact kidney function. Um, there are other short-term renal dysfunction with imatinib is pretty uncommon, actually, um, but some people can just be particularly sensitive to drugs. So I think for an individual, it's important to talk to your doctor about your own specific case and your own specific scenario um, when a unique toxicity emerges. But short-term renal insufficiency from, uh, from imatinib is pretty uncommon. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Heinrich, do you want to add anything? Or? Um, I would agree. I would, on you know, for neoadjuvant treatment of stomach tumors, um, <laughs> I guess I'll reverse myself and say it's location, location, location. Um, so you, tumors that are very close to the GE junction um, or that would that require a total gastrectomy or uh, to do a resection that you lose most of your stomach or your GE junction, which is sort of the one-way valve, that can be pretty morbid in terms of long-term side effects of things like dumping syndrome or having wide-open reflux if we took out your GE junction. So <clears throat> oftentimes, you know, at our institution for patients who have tumors in which we think that, yes, we could remove it, but no, we don't really think that you'll enjoy the long-term outcome of your surgery, we often do neoadjuvant therapy, but we continue it somewhat indefinitely um, because if you're tolerating the drug well, we feel that being on a pill and feeling okay is better than not being able to lay down anymore because you're going to have such bad reflux um, or you're going to have, if we have to remove your entire stomach, that the dumping syndrome and weight loss and metabolic complications of that are going to be a major problem for you. So. Sometimes we do the treatment to try to improve surgery, but sometimes we 
hold back on surgery if we think that maybe taking a pill is a better option than having an operation that's going to cre create a lot of long-term health consequences. You're actually, um, I have to say, for the participants on the call, um, they're really getting such wonderful information. And, of course, our speakers have been very specific about the fact that they're giving you some guidelines to think about with your healthcare team. Um, of course, they cannot give you, of course, um, a consultation on the call. I think you all are aware of that, but they are going to do the very best they can to address your question in a way that you then can go back to treating the healthcare team. Um, so now we have a question. This question is for Dr. Heinrich. Um, is CSS a clinical description of some patients with HPPS? In other words, does CSS patients with a germline SDHX mutation fall under broader category of hereditary paraganglioma theocytoma right. Yes. Right. So, syndrome? Yes. Right, right. <laughs> so the SDH is actually a complex, which means it's made up of multiple proteins. So there's four proteins, SDHA, SDHB, SDHC, SDHD. And typically, SDHA and SDHB are the ones that are deficient in GIST, but it can be others as well. But the question um, is, you know, again, reflects good knowledge that I sort of simplified things because you, if you have those mutations, you are not only at risk for getting GIST, you're also at risk for getting other weird, uh, strange uh, tumors called paragangliomas, pheochromocytomas, um, renal cell or kidney cancer or even tumors of the pituitary gland. And so in patients or families that we identify that you have that mutation that's inherited in multiple people, we have to worry not only about whether you might get a GIST, but m whether you might get one of these other tumors. And so there are specialized screening um, procedures with lab tests and MRIs that have to be done um, pretty much lifelong. For some of these like SDHB, if you have an SDHB mutation that you inherit. In a lot of studies, it's suggested that patients have a 70% chance of developing at least one tumor to age 70 that relates to that mutation. Not necessarily a GIST, paragangliomas actually are more common, but um, it's pretty likely that something will go wrong at some point in your life. Um, and so identifying who's at risk and doing surveillance, all of these things we can deal with very well if they're small and we remove them while they're benign. And when they get bigger or metastasize, then our treatments are not as effective. So we, we want to identify and do surveillance because we think that there's something important to do, just like having a colonoscopy and taking out a polyp is a lot easier than taking out colon cancer or having a mammogram and finding something that's very small or benign in your breast is a lot better than getting a more complicated breast cancer that spreads to lymph nodes or to the rest of your body and is ultimately fatal. Um, so, yes, there are other cancers that can um, be seen with um, these mutations, and then there's different names, Carnistratakis, which I think was the CS, um, and there's also carny triad, which is not related to this, but not mutation-wise, but kind of pathologically-wise, but that's probably too complicated for this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Um, Joyce, do you want to add anything? No, I don't have anything to add. I thought that was a okay. very comprehensive answer. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. They, they are. Actually, they are comprehensive. I sometimes just, I know for the um, participants, I know that um, it's really sometimes helpful to hear um, the dialogue amongst our speakers as well. So I, I thank you for that. Um, and a question for Dr. George now. Um, what are your thoughts on ctDNA application for the management of resistance just? Oh, so that's such a good question. I mean, ctDNA, as, as I'm sure many people on the call know, but in case there are some that don't, is circulating tumor DNA. So basically trying to identify the DNA of the tumor through a blood draw. Um, and in some cancers, that has been shown to um, impact treatment um, and or impact and help us understand the disease and understand treatment paradigms because you can learn about the mutation profile of the tumor through the blood. 
um, in many ways just seems like it's really poised to be able to be a tumor where ctDNA could be applicable because we know the mutations that we're looking at in terms of KIT mutations. We know the general regions of the primary and secondary mutations in patients with KIT, primary KIT-driven GIST. <clears throat> but the challenge is we've not yet seen consistently in the clinical trial setting um, of the way of, uh, we've not consistently been able to see that we can use it to either predict response to therapy or um, predict ability predict progression um, on a given therapy or predict response on a given therapy one of the so you know one of the things about this technology and gist is that um, gist tend to shed much lower levels of ctDNA than some of the more common malignancies that are using ctDNA, like lung cancer, for example, or even colon cancer where some studies are done. So just 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 sheds much less of it, so it's a little harder to find. So you have to take the negative with a, um, we're still understanding the relevance of negative versus positive. We're understanding what that means over time. So that's a long answer to basically say, I think it's a really promising and exciting technology I think it's something that many of us are thinking a lot about, um, but I don't think we're quite ready yet to apply it consistently in the clinical uh, in clinical care. Excellent. I don't know, and Mike. What do you think? Uh, I agree. I, you know, I think there's certain rules for it. If if we don't want if we don't know what your primary mutation is because that was never done and it's you know five years ago in three states over at some hospital you don't remember the name of, then it might be easier to do circulating tumor DNA because we can see probably see your primary mutation about 70% of the time in the blood, so that might just skip a lot of logistics to get us to a faster answer. Mm -hmm. In terms of if we did it and saw a secondary mutation, would it choose us to use drug B over drug A or drug C? We don't really – we've never studied that prospectively where we actually – that is, we assign people's treatment based on the circulating tumor DNA versus what we would do normally and see if there's a difference. So that's really the fundamental question. I mean, it's interesting biologically to, under, to try to get insight into what's going on. But right now, we don't really know that if you had progression on imatinib, we don't know that doing a circulating tumor DNA would teach tell us use regorafenib over sunitinib or repretinib if you could get it. Um, so we don't really know how to use the results of it, or if it, you know, it's possible that, you know, we 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 think that we'd make a better decision, but it's possible that if we did a clinical trial, we'd find out we would have been better off to just do what we normally do rather than follow the circulating tumor DNA. So that's really kind of the limitations of our knowledge. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for uh, Dr. Um, Heinrich. Um, hello. I'm a 32-year-old female who was diagnosed with just at 28 years old. Exxon 11 mutation. After a resection of a tumor in my small intestine in a three-year 400-milligram adjuvant treatment, I have stopped. Are there any studies on how three years or more of imatinib treatment affect fertility and or higher risks for pregnancy? Is there a recommended wait time before trying to conceive? Um, I think that would be a general, that would be a kind of a general yeah. answer because we don't know right, all the details, right. of course. Right, right. So in general, we don't believe that these drugs affect fertility, so it's not like chemotherapy or bone marrow transplantation in which some treatments can cause a high risk of infertility that can be permanent. Um, so we don't really think that this affects fertility. We, these drugs are not safe to be taken during pregnancy, um, and we generally recommend people be off the drug for a couple months before trying to conceive is a sort of a general recommendation. Um, we don't really have a more specific guideline. Most of these drugs have very short half-life, so within a week, all of the drug is out of your body. Um, but just for safety, we generally ask for a little bit more time than that. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. George, do you want to add anything? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we have had other – there certainly are reports of women um, having successful pregnancies after being on imatinib. Um 
But I think just as you said, the the specifics are up, to, you know, very specific to an individual person and their care team. Excellent. So that would be a conversation. So some of you, the questions you ask, please take them back to your healthcare team. It's a good uh, kind of role play for asking your healthcare team. So you've gotten some information here, but really take it back because they know everything about you. Um, and this will be our last question, um, and this will be for Dr. Um, George. Um, is there an increased risk of developing any other kind of cancer during lifetime after GIST? Is there a way to mitigate this? I think that's a good question, you know, and I would refer back to what um, Dr. Heinrich said earlier. There are some subtypes of GIST that do that are associated with syndromes um, that may be associated with other neoplasms. And th that type of GIST is SDH deficient GIST, so this sort of unique subtype of GIST, because a subset of patients with SDH deficient GIST has germline alterations in the SDH genes and have a predisposition to develop some other unusual cancers. With that said, the majority of GISTs, which are kit-driven and, um, and and are not in that subgroup of GISTs, the majority of GISTs do not seem to be associated with hereditary syndromes. Um, I think the most important part there is really to communicate with your own healthcare team about any significant cancer history in the family, um, to see how that may be relevant to your particular case. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Heinrich, do you want to add anything to that? No, I'm, I don't, we would okay. still recommend, especially in people are doing really well with their gist, you know, don't ignore the rest of your health. So, you know, if you should get a colonoscopy, you should get a colonoscopy. If you should have a mammogram, you should have a mammogram. Um, we do, you know, because we're doing imaging for long periods of time, we do tend to find benign things. So a lot of people have very benign or very slow-growing kidney cancers that we see on our abdominal CTs that, you know, we watch for years, and we probably never would have known about them except for we're doing just imaging. So I think there is a little bit of detection of benign, kind of irrelevant things just because we do a lot of scans. Um, but other than, you know, you should do what's appropriate for your overall general health. Um, so keep your blood pressure controlled, keep your weight controlled, keep your diabetes controlled, do your cancer screenings, um, and, you know, be active, be healthy, be the best version of you that you can be. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, that's a lovely way to, to conclude the call, um, really. Um, that, that sounds really quite, quite inspirational to everybody on the call today. That's um, important as well. And Dr. Uh, George, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I think that that's great. I, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, everything that we've done in just in cancer in general, it's to help people live well. And um, the development of the therapeutic strategies that we have are leading to patients living with advanced just longer than they ever have in the past. And um, the goal is to help people live well, enjoy their lives um, to the best of their ability. Well, this is a wonderful, again, I, I, I want to thank our speakers. They've really been phenomenal. And I also want to thank you for that, for what you said at the end of this call, because I think that's an important, so important people to take away from this call as well. Um, and I also, um, I want to thank all of our participants who've asked such really great questions. I, I know there are many more questions that people have in queue, but I'll address that. Um, but I just want to thank our speakers. You've just been phenomenal. Thank you. And our participants, too, as well, asking such great questions. So as we're about to wrap up the program, I do want to just make some concluding remarks before we do conclude. Um, most importantly, those of you who asked a question today or heard someone else's question or didn't get to ask your question, please take that information back to your treating healthcare team. I think we've said throughout, they know you the best and indeed take it back either in a visit or in a telehealth visit, um, telemedicine visit, um, and take what you've learned and you know, run it past your healthcare team, your questions. We also know that many of you like to go to other resources to get your questions answered, and 
I just want to um, give a call out to the Life Raft Group. They're a wonderful organization. Many of you may be connected to them already, but that's a great organization if you want to get some additional information. Um, they have lots of information that might be very useful to you, and so to actually utilize their website and their, um, we will be sending that information to you, of course, on their website and all of their uh, various informational pieces and webinars that they offer that will give you additional information as well. And of course, we also often recommend the National Cancer Institute as well as another resource to go to. Um, and. Um, and so there are many other organizations we will list for you to go to. And for those of you who wish to pursue any of the services that Cancer Care offers, um, you can contact us either by calling our Hopeline number or by visiting our website. Perhaps most importantly, as we conclude today, I, we do not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with GIST or any other type of sarcoma or cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support, and there are really hundreds of organizations out there um, that can offer you support. In addition to your healthcare team, we never want to sidestep your healthcare team. They are very important. Whatever you learn somewhere else, please bring it back to your healthcare team. We also recommend that you go to credible websites. So websites that are first of 2020 and even ideally been checked within this month. You want to be sure that the information you get is the most up-to-date. That's very important, particularly in the world we live in today, but that's always been the case. We must really have up-to-date information. And from the National Cancer Designated Centers of Excellence. So when you call the National Cancer Institute, they will give you a listing of those those institutions, those medical centers, um, which both Dr. George and Dr. Heinrich are parts of. Those are institutions that are have met a certain standard of excellence um, designated by the National Cancer Institute, and those are places that you do want to go to for information as well. It doesn't mean you have to go there for your treatment. It does mean, though, you go there to get information because they all have just wonderful informational resources. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.